Um, thank you for the reading of that word. I'm not, I'm not going to take up my preaching time. I want to get right into it. So some of you know me. Um, I did my doctorate work here, and so I know uh, the faculty here and some of the familiar faces in the room. I thank my brother for coming to support me today. A large part of my ministry in this place as a transplanted American has been to work toward social equity and, and to encourage my brothers and sisters to be unified in our efforts to conquer the ills of our world. I spent a lot of time in the streets at rallies and protesting and speaking to government. I understand from the uh, life of Jesus Christ and his ministry that to dwell together in unity uh, is a command that we have, but in order to do that, we have to value diversity. Theo theology professor Ben Sanders III said, to truly value diversity is to constantly learn about those around you. It is to learn that diversity means codependency, not by choice, but by God-ordained requirement. God created us as a body, and as such, we are dependent on one another to survive. As you work in academy and prepare to serve the church, I encourage you to see beyond your familiar context and look with a kingdom eye. See the marginalized and the excluded. Determine that you will work for their liberation. None of us can truly have peace and prosperity until we all, every one of us, is free to enjoy that same peace. To see our fellow human beings in states of unrest and in the grips of the powers of evil should stir in us an ever-increasing desire to secure justice and mercy for all. Whatever divides, separates, oppresses, and binds, in the words of the late, great Marvin Gaye, because I'm old head, <laughs> ought to make you want to holla. Let us pray. Lord God, now in this the moment of proclamation, we invite you to open up this word to our understanding, and our hearts are always grateful that you care enough to send us a word, that you continue to toil in us. And so, Lord, we stand on your truth that says, when it goes out, it does not return unto you void, but accomplishes the purpose for which it has been sent. Aim true today and do a work in us. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. In the name of Christ Jesus, let me decrease now so that you would increase and it come forth as you would have it. We ask these things in the Savior's name. Amen. Amen. Believers stand on the battlefield in a war the enemy of our souls has waged against the Lord God and those who love God. As foot soldiers, we are called upon to stand. God will fight the battle, but we must stand. And what are we to stand for? As we would say in our church, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> glad you asked. 
We are to stand for the principles of the in-breaking kingdom of God. The transformative power of Holy Spirit dwelling in the hearts of believers calls us to stand for justice and righteousness. We are called and commissioned to stand for the truth of God and to proclaim that truth throughout the world. We are called to be a people united in faith and purpose to represent the joy and the liberty that is found in the kingdom of the true and living God. An illustration of the liberty to be found in Jesus and the kingdom mandate of unity is found in this story about a Syrophoenician woman who sought healing for her child. Dr. Brian Blunt, who's a former professor and friend of mine, New Testament scholar, states in his book, Making Room at the Table, An Invitation to Multicultural Worship, quote, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is a preacher of multicultural worship. He envisioned a future that was radically different from the one espoused by the temple leadership, stand for justice and righteousness. We are called and commissioned to stand for the truth of God and to proclaim that truth throughout the world. We are called to be a people united in faith and purpose to represent the joy and the liberty that is found in the kingdom of the true and living God. An illustration of the liberty to be found in Jesus and the kingdom mandate of unity is found in this story about a Syrophoenician woman who sought healing for her child. Dr. Brian Blunt, who's a former professor and friend of mine, New Testament scholar, states in his book, Making Room at the Table, An Invitation to Multicultural Worship, quote, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is a preacher of multicultural worship. He envisioned a future that was radically different from the one espoused by the temple leadership of his present Jerusalem. The temple presided over a world where non-Jewish ethnicities were condemned by the theological motive, motifs of holiness and purity and demonized by the myopic fever of messianic nationalism. Mark's Jesus offered a counter-kingdom, Blunt says, a counter-kingdom proposal. He foresaw a time when every people of every nation would call God's temple their house of prayer. And so Mark wrote to rally his people. He wanted them to bring into the present what Jesus had foreseen of the end, end quote. In other words, Mark 7, 24 to 30 envisions the future by foreshadowing a world where Jews and Gentiles share together the bread of God's healing, life-giving, and life-sustaining power. The societal constructs, the bigotry, the ethnic boundary that separated Jew and Gentile from, uh, through legal codes of ritual and purity were discarded and broken through by a Jesus ministry that demonstrated God's vision of all people coming together in communal meal and communal worship, no matter their human or physical circumstance. 
As the story goes, Jesus was in Gennesaret and has traveled into another country just to catch a little break when he is intruded upon by this woman. Sometimes the ministry is in the interruptions. Amen? She comes to Jesus asking him to save her daughter from an unclean spirit. This woman is a non-person in the eyes of the Jews, a pagan nobody. When Jesus responds to the woman's request, he says that the children must first be satisfied. Dr. Blunt says the language of satisfaction, cortazo, is suggestive. It is used by Mark here and in the parallel stories where first a Jewish crowd of 5,000 and then a Gentile crowd of 4,000 are fed bread in the desert. So Jesus, in verse 27, is describing his healing power as the children's bread. It is as though bread is symbolic of the breaking down of boundaries that separate Jew and Gentile. Jesus certainly uses the bread that way in his ministry. He feeds everyone. When people eat together, it is reflective of the koinonia, the beloved community that God created us to be. We come together in community around the table. It's hard to be mad and suspicious when you're eating with people, right? The woman waits for the response of the one that she knows can help her, and he tells her bluntly, he is here first for the children of Israel. He sets up what appears to be an exclusivistic boundary. First, let the children eat all they want. He clarifies, because it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. At first glance, (laughs) at first glance, somebody say, first impressions count, at first glance, it looks like our Lord, whom we believe to be loving and kind, is turning down this poor woman who desperately needs him. It seems that he is conforming to the exclusionary perspective shaped by the traditions of his elders, the very traditions he has spent so much religious capital debunking. But in the kingdom, things are not always what they seem. Hallelujah! (laughs) Jesus was actually working to break down centuries of bigotry, racial hatred, and societal divisions. Believing that he had found someone who would respond in the proper way, he allowed himself to be shamed momentarily so that he could show the shame of an attitude that considered other people as unclean and unworthy. Jesus expected the woman to rise to the occasion, and he was not disappointed. Her response is remarkable. She agrees with the recognized status of Gentiles in the eyes of Judaism of the time. How many know sometimes it's just a waste of your breath to try and explain to somebody that you're just as worthy as they are? You know what? Let's just go with your thought for a minute. And yet, appealing to the same universal understanding of God that Jesus himself teaches, she declares that although a dog may be unclean and therefore lower than even a child, 
household, it still exists within the household. It is still a part of God's communal creation. She takes what Jesus has dished out and she reshapes it. Jews, considering dogs unclean, did not usually let them inside the house. But Gentiles would domesticate the animals and bring them in. In her Gentile worldview, it was possible to be a dog and yet still be within the family space. As such, a dog would have access to the leftover bread that falls from the children's table. Whatever Jesus fed, whenever Jesus fed the multitudes, there was an abundance of leftover bread. Right. The Syrophoenician woman wonders why this bread cannot be used to feed her and her people's Amen. hunger. Amen. We'll take your leftovers. Amen. How many know some people are just living in the overflow? Amen. <laughs> They're just getting the leftovers. When Jesus agreed, the boundary-breaking movement of Mark's gospel takes explicit form. Jesus grants her request because of the power of her argument. It is an argument that not only recognizes the difference between Jew and Gentile, but then breaches that separation by suggesting that Gentiles, too, should receive the power of God's healing reign. Mark shares this story because Mark wants us to holler for transformation the way that woman hollered for her daughter. She didn't give up. She hollered for the transformation of her daughter's life situation, even when all the signals say you ought to shut up, give up, and go home. Even when folks call you out your name and throw a slur at you, you have to stand up for change. If that woman could stand up for, to Jesus, we ought to be able to stand up to anybody and anything else on this planet. God intends for us to be community together. The Lord's bread of healing and power is intended to feed all of us, despite our cultural and ethnic differences. We have to continue to break through the boundaries and break down the walls that have been built over the centuries to divide us. You want change? You want to build on earth the kind of diversity we envision in heaven? He seems to be telling the woman then you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to be relentless. You're going to have to raise your voice. You're going to have to holler. The inequities and injustices that we see, church, ought to make us want to holler. Drugs were ignored as a problem while it stayed in the black community. But when drugs started showing up in the dominant society, on the coffee tables of prominent people, Society took notice and started the war on drugs. HIV AIDS was dismissed from concern by mainstream society. No one cared about its effect on the gay community until it was realized that HIV AIDS does not discriminate and people from all walks of life can be its prey. Under education, unemployment, and street violence have been ever-increasing problems in the black community in Nova Scotia. People brush it off as a black problem, but there is no such thing. This is a community problem. This is a Christian community problem. Yeah. The ill 
among those the least prepared to battle them. And if those evils are not stopped, they spread to more and more sectors of society until those who thought they were immune are suddenly stricken. If we're going to defeat these problems, we're going to have to stand together. We cannot afford to continue to be suspicious of each other. We cannot afford to berate, belittle, disrespect, or ignore each other. We cannot be afraid to embrace the other and work shoulder to shoulder until we see a positive change. If we want to see a turnaround, we're going to have to raise our voices. Marvin Gaye wrote a song to express his frustration at the way things were going in our society in his day. And what is remarkable is that those lyrics are just as meaningful today. The song is called Inner City Blues. Rockets, moonshots, spend it on the have-nots. Money, we make it. Before we see it, you take it. Oh, make you want to holler the way they do my life. Make me want to holler the way they do my life. This ain't living. This ain't living. Seeing hungry and homeless people on the streets of our city when we live in the most affluent part of the world should make you want to holler. Knowing that we have a rising population of high school dropouts when our ancestors actually died for the right to have an education ought to make you want to holler. Educated folks who cannot seem to hold down a job because of short-term grants or economic downturns and racial discrimination should make you want to holler. Seniors who cannot make ends meet because their pensions are not enough to keep up with rising inflation in a tough economy ought to make you want to holler. Gay says, uh, inflation, no chance to increase finance. Bills pile up sky high. Send that boy off to die. Oh, make me want to holler the way they do my life. Young girls who can only get a male's attention by debasing themselves ought to make you want to holler. Children having babies because they so desperately need somebody to love and somebody to love them ought to make you want to holler. Hang-ups, let-downs, bad breaks, setbacks. Natural fact is, honey, I can't pay my taxes. Oh, make me want to holler and throw up both my hands. (laughs) Oh, make me want to holler and throw up both my hands. This ain't living. Our young boys struggling to become men who find it necessary to carry a weapon just to go back and forth in the neighborhood safely should make you want to holler. Thugs recruiting our kids into criminal activity with the lure of easy money ought to make you want to holler. The disproportionate number of black males locked up in jail cells when others go free for the same crime ought to make you want to holler. Crime is increasing, trigger-happy policing, panic is spreading. God knows where we're heading. Oh, make me want to holler. They don't understand. The last verse offers some hope. Marvin Gaye says, God knows where we're heading like people often do. You say, what's going on? Only God knows. They don't mean it in the same way I mean it. I say, God knows where we're heading. 
we don't have to worry about tomorrow. God holds tomorrow, right? God knows where we're heading. That is the encouraging news today. The world is in a mess, but God has not forsaken us. God has not left us alone. God has not given up on us. We are a people brought together for such a time as this. God knew exactly where he was placing you and when he was calling you and when you would answer and what you can do to change the situation. We are a people brought together for such a time as this. In Christ, there is neither clean nor unclean, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, black nor white, superior nor inferior, privileged nor unworthy. All of us can share the bread of kingdom power and deliverance. God wants to accomplish a change through you, this present generation, through Jesus Christ who died to save us, and now whose Holy Spirit indwells us, we have the power to transform. By our witness, we can show people what it means to be Christ-like in this world. Through Jesus Christ, church, we have the victory, and that ought to make you want to holler. Amen. Yeah.